Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 971. To begin this week's show, David Lorelo welcomes Derek Falvey, president of baseball operations for the Minnesota Twins. We hear about players like Simeon Woods-Richardson, Johan Duran, Joe Smith, and Dylan Bundy, as well as the team hiring Kevin Goldstein away from Fangraphs. Derek also gives us an inside look on things like the Jose Barrios trade, how the club helps pitchers get into analytics, whether it is safe to make a deal with the Rays, and how much autonomy the front office gives manager Rocco Baldelli. It's 100% up to Rocco to use the information as he goes. Now, that said, they are definitely spending time pregame thinking about what situations might arise. I'll, I'll often sit in Rocco's office and see he and Wes and Jace banter back and forth. If Okay, if we get to the sixth inning in this game and it's tied and we're in this portion of the lineup, you know, is this an area where we want to go to to Joe Smith, as you just mentioned earlier, or are we going to Tyler Duffy in, in that section of the lineup? Because that's probably the best way to bridge to Yohan Duran in, in, in the next portion of the lineup. They are thinking about those to make those decisions beforehand. After that, Ben Clements is joined by Jason Martinez as they react to the first couple weeks of the season. Jason was in the park for the Luke Voigt and Tommy Pham drama, and he and Ben talk about the sometimes double-edged sword of playing with a chip on your shoulder like Pham does. The duo also talk about the ups and downs of the NL West, including how the D-backs are struggling while the Rockies are looking better than expected. Ben and Jason also discuss how offense feels down in general, as well as how the Baltimore Orioles have a new pitching philosophy that seems to be paying early dividends. They just set their target up down the middle and, you know, say, get the ball in the strike zone and, like, let your let your ride or your carry or whatever move it to the edges, but I want you throwing strikes. And the Orioles pitching is great this year. I mean, it's extremely small samples, but they have the fourth most pitching war in baseball. They have a 281 ERA. A lot of that is because they've allowed home runs on 4% of their fly balls, and that's not going to continue. <laughs> but before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and check out that Fangraphs.com shop. It is not just the place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. Not only do you get blazing fast browse times across the site, but as a Fangraphs member, you are helping to support and sustain the site and everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Derek Falvey, president of baseball operations for the Minnesota Twins. Derek, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Always good to talk with you, David, and uh, happy to happy to be a part of it today. And happy to have you. So let's start, actually, Derek, with uh, the fact that you actually stole a Fangraphs employee recently. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> well, I would say no uh, no better form of flattery, right, or ultimately uh, how you guys should feel about everything that's being done over there than uh, than someone trying to pick off some of the uh, the quality people that you have along the way. But we're really excited to have Kevin uh, join our club. I know he's, he's done a lot of work in the game for a lot of years, and his perspective and experience and his skill set adding to our group, uh, we're really just thrilled to have him. Yeah, that is Kevin Goldstein, of course. And uh, I guess we'll forgive you for that. I think we're going to carry on here at Fangraphs without KG, but it, it'll be tough. You keep finding ways to, to backfill for sure. Every day I look up, there's somebody else there that, that brings a, a new set of skills and, and a set of abilities to, to what you guys all do over there. So I'm sure some other team will pick off somebody else along the way, but uh, thanks for sharing Kevin with us. 
And speaking of, of other teams, Derek, I should also mention that you're probably under a certain amount of pressure here in that you are the second president of baseball ops that we've had on the show here. You know, Ross Atkins was on roughly a year ago. So your challenge is to be an even better guest than than Ross was. I, I think you are you up for that challenge? <laughs> well, I, I'm a I'm a close friend of Ross's. We worked together for a number of years in Cleveland, so uh, I'll try and fill his shoes as best I can. I'm the, no no guarantees I could be better than that. That's for sure. No, you the two of you did work together, and uh, you you and Ross have also consummated at least one trade together. And that was just last year. You know, just how much inside dirt uh, can you give us, Derek, on uh, on how that deal went down? You know, I, I often get asked uh, if if doing a trade with someone you've worked with before is is easier or harder than than the other trades you do along the way, and I think uh, I think the answer is sometimes both. You know, when you know somebody so well, uh, you can start the conversation so much more easily around potential fits and and the way it'll work. Uh, you understand the way the other person is thinking about how that how they're acquiring that player. Uh, and it certainly helps start that conversation, then it might get more difficult because you know too much about one another through the course of the conversation. But I will tell you that the one we did last summer with Ross, you know, Ross was very direct and very candid about what they were focused on um, and in, in Jose and with where we were at the time as a, at the, as a team. I felt like that was a deal we did with a little bit of an eye toward the future and excited about the prospects we got back in it. But it's uh, it's always challenging to start a conversation along the way, a little easier when you know the person as, as well as I know Ross. And this was, of course, Jose Barrios uh, in exchange for Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson, who actually made the initial contact on that deal. You know, at the trade deadline, it's it's fairly customary that you're you're checking in with every club. So you know, Toronto's a team. We tend to split up our teams within the office here, just on relationships. You know, among me, Thad, uh, and our assistant general managers, Daniel Adler and Jeremy Zoll. So it actually works out really well sometimes when you know the people you know, in different places as well as I know Ross. So I remember during the course of the conversation, they were clearly uh, in a better position relative to playoff position than we were at the time. Uh, and he had reached out at one point to talk about their needs and, and potential fits with us. And I, I think if I remember right, uh, it just started going from there. And Woods Richardson has gotten off to a really good start in double A this year. We're actually talking on Tuesday afternoon. So Hopefully, I'm not jinxing him you know, prior to his next start. But what did you like about Simeon Woods Richardson? You know, when we got into that deal, we were we certainly have a ton of respect for Jose Barrios and, and what he's meant to this organization and certainly what he's done on the field for us. And uh, those, those are always difficult conversations. But when we had the discussion and were able to talk about Austin Martin, who we felt was a, a premium talent at the top end of the previous draft, uh, middle infielder who we think is going to hit for a long time in the big leagues, and then in addition, as you're asking here, uh, what we really liked about Woods Richardson was he had exceptional feel for his pitches. You know, he was a guy who uh, was really young for his level as he came through the minor leagues and had always continued to pitch really beyond his years. And, and we saw that even in the when the players returned in 2021 after losing 2020 during the COVID season, that ultimately he was able to continue that. And when we saw him this spring after he returned uh, through the course of the off-season work and he got to, to camp, the velocity ticked up. The, the command and the sharpness of the secondary pitches got better. And I, I will tell you, he's off to the start. I think we would have thought he would have been uh, based on what we got to see this spring on the backfield. His work against our minor league hitters or even in minor league spring training games was exceptional. So we think we have a chance for a guy that can pitch in the rotation really soon here uh, at the major league level and hopefully be a big part of what we're building for the future. 
And with stuff in mind, Derek, the Twins a number of years ago had a reputation of developing pitchers who maybe they were more pitchability guys. They really weren't good at missing bats. To what extent has that changed in recent years? Well, it certainly has. You know, we've we've put an emphasis on, since I got here at the end of 2016, we put an emphasis on both in the selection process and the development process, adding to some of that swing and miss stuff. You know, we know the game today definitely revolves around uh, some of that type of pitching. And so we knew we needed to, uh, to up that in certain uh, spaces. And we've seen young guys come through now uh, that are now starting to get to the major leagues here after the last three to four seasons of pitching through our minor league system that are ultimately showing some of that. You know, Joan Duran is someone that we're really excited about who's now gotten to the big leagues for us uh, that we acquired part of a trade and has finally matured to a point where he's ready to pitch in the major leagues with, with big time stuff and, and big time ability. So we're hopeful that more pitchers like that are matriculating to the major leagues here in the in the near term. No, big time stuff with Duran, I think, goes without saying. He was throwing, you know, 100, maybe 101 at Fenway, you know, this past, uh, I think it was yesterday, he threw two days ago, and his splitter was like really hard. Do you recall what the reports were on him when you acquired him as a 20-year-old? Yeah, it was somebody that we knew. We liked the body. We liked the physicality. Uh, we felt his arm worked pretty well. There were maybe some question marks about starter reliever at the time. But when we made that trade, it, we had an eye toward how do we build more on top of what he had. He had a really good foundation. He was only an A ball, uh, but we knew there was something to really like. We felt the makeup was good. We had done really good work. Our scouts did, and our player personnel crew to understand the player. And then when he came over, as you just mentioned, his uh, his splitter that I think has been termed a splinker because it's really more of a, a, a splitter sinker at those velocities than it is a true split has become kind of a standout pitch. You know, No one throws something like that. And uh, I know that what I've heard from hitters who've seen it along the way, it's uh, it's definitely jarring. And that's a good thing when you have a pitcher that has something unique like Johan brings. Hopefully that'll allow him to, to do some things that hitters are really uncomfortable facing as we go forward. Circling back to uh, trade partners, when Tampa Bay makes a deal, people have begun reacting by saying, great trade by the Rays. You know, who did they get? <laughs> Is it safe to trade with Eric Neander? <laughs> well, Eric's another one of my friends of the game that I, I, you know, I consider a close relationship. And Eric is in, incredibly good at his job and, and what they've been able to do over the years and build in Tampa, I think, is the envy of so many in the industry. And uh, so you're always cautious because, you know, they've, they've got good information and they've got good uh, good detail. We've, ha we've been able to make a couple of trades with them. And hopefully, you know, in many ways, those do work out on both sides. That's always the ideal is that if you can find a fit. That help, whether it helps them in the short term or us in the short term, either way, that, that there's a good blending of short and long-term values that get exchanged in these kinds of deals. And you and David Stearns work together in Cleveland as well. So with information and relationships in mind, do you and David Stearns think much alike? Do most GMs in today's world think much alike? Well, I think it's, it's definitely varied across the game in terms of where teams are uh, and how they navigate. There are certain similarities, uh, definitely, between some of us, whether they, we've been raised in the game by certain mentors of ours and are influenced in that way. That's obviously going to, to lead to some similar ways of thinking. But I will tell you, most of the time, 
the the best GMs that I've been able to work with and 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 people who are leading baseball operations around the game, they adapt to the situation they're in. And I think uh, there are times when you're not in as uh, fortunate a position as you'd like to be from a, you know, whether it's your record at the trade deadline or what your plan is to do that off season, or you're on the flip side. Maybe things sped up for you and, and your team's a little better than maybe you even thought at the outset and you've got to make some decisions along the way. I know I've personally had to navigate those those waters through the course of the last uh, handful of years. And I think that as you continue to learn, uh, what I've learned from much more senior uh, GMs around or mentors of mine is that you have to be able to think and move and change and adapt based on the circumstances you're facing at that time. And with circumstances in mind, there's yet another dynamic. Some of your front office brethren, I think brethren applies to both men and women, are challenged by being in organizations where ownership isn't exactly committed to, you know, to winning at the moment. They don't open up their pocketbooks. You're not in a position like that in Minnesota. You're not the Yankees, of course, but you're also not one of the teams that is, you know, is often criticized. How much harder does that make it make a job? Well, I think certainly the more you, the more levers you can kind of push and pull at your fingertips, the more, the more flexibility you will have. And I think at the end of the day, you know, for us, and I can speak just from my seat, uh, what Jim Polad and the Polad family has done to support any decision we've made collectively as a baseball operation over the years I've been here has been, has really been tremendous. Whether that's an investment, you know, in our personnel and, or in technology or in staff or in development, you know, within our people. All of those things they view under one umbrella. And I know we tend to focus and, and fixate on what that means from a payroll standpoint, of which we've been very fortunate. We've been able to push our payrolls to, to franchise highs or historical highs. But beyond that, I think it's the, the broader investment that we get to make in nutrition, in resources around our players, in any ways that we can be helping create the type of culture and environment that we think ultimately will lead to success as an organization. A little bit of a change in direction here, Derek. You hired Rocco Baldelli prior to the 2019 season, I believe. I don't know if you find this uh, an interesting question or not, but how would Rocco compare to Terry Francona, who you were with in Cleveland for years? <laughs> well, uh, I would say, you know, there's a lot of similarities. I, I, that is, as funny as that is, I, I think they're both, uh, you know, they're both really good connectors, really good people to be around. I think yeah, they make you comfortable as soon as you're in their presence. And I, that's, a, that's a really nebulous thing to kind of define, but I would say that that is a really critical skill uh, that a manager brings to a clubhouse and into the environment. Obviously, Tito has a ton of experience, has gone through more ups and downs than Rocco has just in his short time as a manager, but they both lean in to learn and continue to remain curious and try and get better every day, whether Rocco's only been doing it for a couple of years now or Tito as long as he has. I will say this, though, just because I like to poke fun at my, my, my friend Tito from time to time. Rocco's a little cleaner than Tito is. Along the way. <laughs> his, uh, his office could get a little messy over the years, so, but uh, he's, he's one of the best there is out there, and I, I think they do share a lot of similarities. As nuts and bolts managers, it's hard to say just how similar they are. But one thing stood out to me at Fenway on, on Monday. Rocco had Joe Smith intentionally walk Alex Verdugo to load the bases. Watching that, Derek, were you thinking, what is he doing? Or was it at all a pre-planned situation where you're not going to let certain guys beat you in certain situations? Well, I think situationally there, you know, when you talk about left-handed hitters and right-handed hitters, you know, it definitely wasn't pre-planned. I know Rocco and, and Wes Johnson and Jace Tingler, our bench coach, you know, they spend time thinking through scenarios. Where's the right matchup? What does that look like? And I know with the right-handed hitter on deck and Joe Smith being a right-on-right -right type of specialist, you know, in terms of the way he pitches and the way he throws, 
it's a strategic decision that uh, sometimes they don't work out. Sometimes, and managers know that when they don't, uh, they catch all the blame for them. And uh, ultimately, when they do work out, they hope the player gets the credit. And I think that's what you know, that's what Rocco wants. And in many ways, that's what Tito is too. And Rocco, who played for Terry Francona, actually embraces that too. He understands the importance of putting players in positions to be successful and making sure that they, they feel comfortable in those moments. And Joe's a veteran guy who understood the situation and ultimately navigated that portion of the lineup successfully and then got us to a place where we can win that game. And allowing managers to use their intuition is obviously important. You know, that said, does your team really pre-plan in any way for certain situations, or is it basically up to Rocco to use the information as he goes along? It's 100% up to Rocco to use the information as he goes. Now, that said, they are definitely spending time pregame thinking about what situations might arise. I'll, I'll often sit in Rocco's office and see he and Wes and Jace banter back and forth if okay, if we get to the sixth inning in this game and it's tied and we're in this portion of the lineup, you know, is this an area where we want to go to to Joe Smith, as you just mentioned earlier, or are we going to Tyler Duffy in, in that section of the lineup? Because that's probably the best way to bridge to Yohan Duran in, in, in the next portion of the lineup. They are thinking about those to make those decisions beforehand because oftentimes in baseball, you can prepare for at least a couple of situations, you know, a tie game, a close game, runners on, this situation in this portion of the lineup, who would you want to use in that in that uh, case? And oftentimes they are thinking about that, but they have to be able to adapt on their on their feet and on the fly because something could happen that you're not expecting in the game, and ultimately they need to make adjustments as they go. Yeah, speaking of of Joe Smith, uh, I was joking with him yesterday about the fact that uh, he's coming pretty close to catching uh, Cy Young in all time pitching appearances. You know, the difference, of course, being that Cy Young was a, a starter. <laughs> but uh, still, Joe has pitched in, and I didn't write this down, but I think he there are maybe 40 guys in big league history who appeared in more games. That's really pretty remarkable. It's really impressive. And, and I've known Joe since the beginning of that. You know, I was in Cleveland when we first acquired him uh, and so saw him as a young pitcher kind of establishing himself in that role uh, and then ultimately followed him thereafter when he went on to a few other clubs and, and successfully pitched toward the back end of games. I think what makes Joe uh, so so unique and so special in this, he's a tremendous athlete, but he keeps himself prepared every every season, every off season. Uh, he, he keeps his body in shape. He knows what he needs to do from a routine standpoint. And, you know, an added value is he's a tremendous clubhouse guy. He's a great leader. He's a good fit in that environment. He helps young players get better, and he enjoys that. Uh, he doesn't take himself too seriously, and he enjoys the time that he gets every day. And I think he embraces the fact that, you know, if he's at the back end of his career or, or the back half, as he would say, uh, he, he enjoys every day he gets to walk into the ballpark, and he doesn't take it for granted. No, he is definitely a, a good clubhouse guy. Uh, joking with him uh, yesterday, I said, so do you think you're actually better than Cy Young if you catch him? And uh, Joe said, don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, he had some fun with that. Yeah, speaking of impressive, uh, and we're running out of time, but a few more things, Derek. What about Roki Sasaki and what he's been doing in Japan? I believe it's 17 consecutive perfect innings. I know you're focused on MLB and your own team, but can you imagine just a pitcher actually doing that in NPB? No, I mean, I, I will tell you that I'm first and foremost, while I work in the game of baseball and so do you and we all get to, we're all fans at heart, right? And so when there's a cool moment in the game that you don't see happen very often, I think each of us go and dial in a little bit. So I've seen some highlights of him. I've seen some of the uh, some of the video. He's obviously a quite, quite impressive uh, young man and the way he's going about it. But I can't imagine what it would feel like to go through that uh, that stretch of success against good 
professional hitters in, in the environment he's in, and, and hopefully he can continue it because it'd be good for the game of baseball to enjoy that from uh, from overseas over here. Yeah, have you checked with any of your uh, international experts in in uh, the front office to see if there's a loophole to maybe uh, sign Roki Sasaki before anybody else can? <laughs> I wish that were the case. I think ultimately uh, the process will lead uh, somewhere down the line if he ends up coming over here. There'll be a lot of interest in the player, but it, it's it's just fun to watch, you know, to see to see young kids perform that way. It's good for the game of baseball, you know, internationally and domestically, to have something like that happening and have it be as fun as it is. Somebody that has performed really well is uh, Dylan Bundy. And in his two starts since you signed him as a free agent, and I think a lot of people maybe weren't expecting a lot from him. I think his ERA last year was uh, six something. What did your scouts and uh, analytics department see that suggested that Dylan was likely to rebound? You know, I think Dylan, because he's been around as long as he has and, you know, reached free agency, I think a lot of people think of him as being, you know, in the league uh, or older than he actually is ultimately, you know, because he got up to the big leagues at such a young age and, and was such a highly touted young prospect. The thing that really impressed us about Dylan as we came to learn more about him, while he doesn't throw with the same velocity he once did or he's not that quite that high-end stuff guy that he had, he's really transformed who he is as a pitcher uh, and has found ways to command the ball and utilize all his pitches, all his weapons to keep hitters off balance. I think first inning yesterday, I don't, he didn't throw a ball in that inning. He only threw a couple of the second inning. And so I think he's learned to, to pitch ahead in counts, to get really aggressive, to know how to use his mix and navigate a lineup. And he's still young. We feel like just a couple short years ago, he was pitching really well for the Angels out there. And uh, we were hopeful that we'd catch a little more of that with, with full health. He wasn't fully healthy last year. He'd be the, he, he doesn't use that as an excuse, but I think that he didn't pitch to his abilities with that with that hanging over him. But ultimately, we felt like with a healthy season and a healthy start to it, we could get uh, we could get a little more of what we saw before out of Dylan Bundy. And a younger pitcher that is off to a good start, who's very interesting analytically, is uh, Joe Ryan, who I had an opportunity to talk to at Fenway. I think a few, from what I understand, a few of your pitchers are into analytics. Does Wes Johnson play a pretty big part of that? Yeah, I think he, he certainly does. You know, Wes, Wes and a, a number of the people involved in our pitching department, the way I think about analytics with pitching is it's an additional source of information that's going to help us understand how do we make a, a pitcher better. And so to understand how a pitcher's pitches move, how they balance one another, um, what kind of movement profile works in different parts of the strike zone, all of those things play a role. And so Wes is very adept at trying to understand that information, but then translate it from the data and the information into what I would call coach speak, which is how do they make sure that a player understands how to utilize it in a more um, a more plain way, you know, in a more traditional way, because that's how players respond to it. And I think Joe's a great example, you know, as are some of our other young pitchers, guys like Bailey Ober and others that are coming up and, and performing now, they understand how to use that information effectively. You don't want anyone to overthink when they're out there. They need to play to their strengths, but at the end of the day, they need to also be able to self-diagnose from time to time when things aren't going well. I think Wes and, and Joe Ryan have built that relationship and both have a, a deep appreciation for how to use the information to be the best of their that they can be. And two more questions, Derek. The first with diagnosis uh, in mind, self-diagnosis. What do the twins need to do to take that next step? Maybe it's two steps given last season's disappointing record to become a serious World Series contender. 
Well, I think when we look at our team right now, and, and we're certainly excited about the, uh, the what we were able to do coming out of the lockout in the offseason to add someone like Carlos Correa to to the mix to keep uh, to add to Byron Buxton, who we think is one of the best dynamic young players. You know, new players in our group like Gio Urshela, like Gary Sanchez, you know, that add to the Max Kepler and Jorge Polanco, uh, Miguel Sano grouping of guys that have been here for a few years, Louis Arias. We're excited about that core of guys. I think. For us, we need to stay on the field like any team does, stay as healthy as possible, and then to continue to get the starting pitching that we've been able to get and have a few more guys step up, uh, both in the rotation and in the bullpen, uh, to, to elevate us. We, we were excited about what we were able to do winning the division in, in 2019 and 2020. We stumbled last year, and we are not running from that. We are trying to lean in to figure out how do we get better, uh, and we feel our roster is in a, a better place than it was a year ago. And uh, hopefully we're off, off to, we'll get off to a good start here. If we start putting together the offense that I know we're capable of uh, that matches what we've been doing on the pitching side, I think we'll be uh, right in that hunt to, right up to the end. So last question, Derek, is being a president of baseball operations fun? <laughs> That's a great, it, it is if you, if you love the game of baseball the way I do. I mean, you can't, you can't ever walk through the doors and ever feel uh, not pinch yourself. I, I, I feel today when I walk through the door no different than I did when I walked through as an intern uh, going back uh, back to the fall of 2007 when I first walked into a ballpark as an employee of a club. And I'm just really I'm one of those fortunate people to get to do uh, what I'm truly passionate about, what I love for a living. Uh, there's not many people that get to say that, get to do that. The pressure that comes along with it, that's what you sign up for. But uh, I enjoy every day I get to do what I do with the people I get to do it with. So do you think that you aced your uh, your quiz here? Do you think that you outperformed Russ Atkins on Fangraphs Audio? I'm going to leave it to Professor Lorela for that. He, he, needs to, <laughs> he needs to give me the grade at the end of it all. Uh, I'm not going to uh, self-diagnose on that one, put it that way. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll have to sit back and listen, you know, re-listen to the Ross and uh, see. I think we'll be, we'll be calling it a tie, that's my guess. <laughs> that works for me. I think it'll work for Ross, too. I'm sure it will. Hey, Derek, thanks again for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. It was great to have you on. Oh, pleasure to be on and uh, look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. Sounds good, Derek. And for everybody listening, thanks for checking out Fangraphs Audio. Hello again. I'm Ben Clements, writer at Fangraphs, and I'm joined by Jason Martinez, who does everything <laughs> basically everything for roster resource and keeps fan graphs running what's up ben it's good to talk to you what's today today is wednesday morning i think we are officially 13 days into the, the baseball season and a lot of fun stuff already right i mean and this is following a roller coaster off season which was which is just crazy i am so happy it's back it's been really fun yeah i just like i didn't realize how much i missed baseball games being on every day until they were happening no, no doubt, and and so I mean, there's there's a, a lot to talk about just based on 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 13 days. Apparently, there's this new thing where where you can challenge another player to a fight, <laughs> to a Muay Thai match. If you um, maybe in, even in Temecula, I think he specified that uh, he could get down in multiple ways, and it didn't have to be Muay Thai. <laughs> so so we're talking about Tommy Pham. So this is we're, this is Wednesday morning, and so. Tuesday evening, awkward slide at home by Luke Voigt. You look at the replay, it, do, it doesn't look good. Yeah, I mean, whether he meant to or not, he did thrust out his arms and basically knock Tyler Stevenson's head into the ground, giving him a concussion. Yeah, and most of us aren't, you know, 240-pound athletes, you know, running at full speed, trying to slide 
into this little, you know, this little home plate, trying to get around another huge guy who was trying to tag you. And I don't know, I don't think he did it on purpose. You know, if you look at the replay, you can go, (laughs) he definitely, you know, tried to push the guy's head down. I don't know what he what he was thinking, but yeah, um, I'll tell you from, from my experience working, working at the game last night, I was fooled. I thought that was the last out of the inning. So so it was one out, and Luke Voigt's on first base. Profar hit lines a double into the corner. And Voigt is a slow man, and it was taking Pham a bit. You couldn't really see Pham in the corner. And so Mike Schilt uh, was a third base coach. He waved him home. It was pretty obvious <laughs> right away. As soon as Pham made the throw to, into Cal Farmer, he didn't have much of a chance. Yeah, he, he was out by a number yeah, of seconds. I, I thought that I thought that must have been the third out, and that's why he waved him home. It, I was wrong. It was only the second out. So, you know, who knows what any of us would have done in that, that situation. I just think he was just like, okay, well, I can't just bowl him over anymore. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. What can I do? And the guy's head is in my chest here, and I'm just going to push down on his helmet. Maybe he'll drop the ball. But that, yeah, that was a little crazy. But of course, you know, to- Tommy fans <laughs> comments afterwards are, are fun that he wants to challenge him to a, a, a Muay Thai match. Yeah, I will say, I don't know if you know this, but Luke Voigt famously won a giant hunting knife in a double A home run derby. And then <laughs> there are a bunch of pictures of him brandishing it around on the field afterwards. This is a this is a headline matchup here. If 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 they can make it happen, and I think you know baseball really wants to grow grow the sport, maybe <laughs> this is something they should contemplate. Yeah, if you can, you're allowed to you know maybe once a month or once once a week, you get to challenge uh, one of your opponents. <laughs> so there's obviously history here, right? They were minor leaguers in the Cardinal system at the same time. I think it's almost without question that there must be some some type of lingering hard feelings between the two of them, because otherwise <laughs> this seems like an overreaction by Pham. I mean, Pham is not known for underreacting. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because I always wonder, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm at the Pottery game a lot, and there's 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 been a lot of big crowds the last few years, and, and I'm always surprised when they tend, when they seem to applaud or boo, I would say at appropriate times, for the most part, you go, okay, you know, you give you give somebody a standing ovation because, you you know, maybe there's a really good story behind this guy making it back to the big leagues after a long yeah. journey. And, and everybody's giving this guy a standing ovation and he maybe he wasn't that good. And it was just like, all right, did everybody how does everybody in the stadium know about this guy? It's like these people don't know what's going on. You know, they might read some headlines here or there, but a good percentage of these people just came out to watch a ball game and have a beer and have fun. So I'm always surprised. But you know, the, the Tommy Fam booze were pretty it was it was pretty early as soon as, as soon as he came up for his first at bat. And I, I was a little bit surprised. I'm like, why do you why do the Padre fans not like Tommy Pham? Is it because he's he underperformed with the Padres, he was hurt a lot. They just think he's, you know, it was it was the strip club incident where he got stabbed. <laughs> it's yeah. like, why why don't you like this guy? You know, he, he was probably one of the best hitters in baseball for about a two-month stretch last year. Of course, you know, that's not going to show up in his overall stats. So most people aren't going to see that. The Padre fans, you know, were giving Tommy Pham a hard time right away. Yeah, I'm sure that had something to do with it, too. And, and, you know, this is what people will say about Tommy Pham. It's when he came to the Padres, too. This guy plays with a chip on his shoulder. And so, you know, and that can be a good thing. You know, he's going to bring some fire to your roster. He's going to, you know... He's got something to prove. And, and that w- wasn't really the case, you know, mostly because he was hurt with the Padres. But yeah. now, yeah, he probably given him something to prove here. I was like, no, 
don't boo this guy. This is what he wants. You know, he wants he wants somebody to motivate him. And of course, he went off on the Padres. And and that's not enough. The Reds are a really really bad team. Yeah, I, I think that's not a not a big surprise. You know, after after their off season, but um, yeah, you don't want to motivate Tommy Pham because he that guy. Yeah, he wants. It seems like he wants to be motivated, and it seems like if if you if you try to hurt one of you thinks you're trying to hurt one of his guys, that he's going to use that as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it's worth talking about what Stevenson's IL trip means for the Reds. Like, they're not actually really in it. I mean, I don't know. They're going to bring up a catcher from the minor leagues, and that guy. Oh, they have Sandy Leon, huh? They got Sandy Leon. They have a, a I think I don't think it's going to be him. I think it's going to be uh, Mark Colasveri, who's already on the um, the forty man, and I believe uh. I believe he was on the taxi squad as well. Although you know we could see we could see Sandy Leon, but yeah, I think it's going to be the other guy. Yeah, you might as well uh, see a young guy. I think unless they're worried that they just won't have enough people to like handle the pitching staff, know no. everyone, and all that kind of stuff. And now, but the thing is, if you remove Tyler Stevenson from that starting lineup, okay, Stevenson's a good player. He's off to a good start. So you remove him, and it's basically the Kyle Farmer show. And Kyle Farmer's hitting 317 in 45 plate appearances. I'm going to read you the bat, just the batting averages of the rest of the team right now. Uh, 133, 147, 119, 071, 111, 059, 143. That's that's everybody else in the lineup. And that's even after yeah. Fam had like five hits in the last two days. But Jason, Joey Votto is on TikTok. But Joey Votto is on TikTok. Uh, Joey Votto is <laughs> yeah. a likable guy. He's fun. But it is, it's dire there. I would love to see Joey Votto hit a home run today. Have a big game, but, you know, the Padres finish off the sweep here. Yeah, the Padres have looked good early this year. Padres got some starting pitching, man. I think I understand why they, they loaded up on pitching, too, because their offense is, is kind of bad without without Tatis. Yeah, that's understandable. Although, you know, Machado and Hosmer are earning their money right now. That's always a good thing. You got two guys carrying the, the offense right now, getting paid a lot of money. And I think, you know, that's why, especially why Hosmer gets a hard time, because yeah. uh, it's not that he's he's completely horribly I, I think he's a perfectly average major league hitter but he, he makes a lot of money and and uh he's seen as the guy who's supposed to put up huge numbers and he doesn't but uh so, so far so good no homers but he's helping a really bad offense right now i think yeah i think that's a that's a fair take on it if it's not another you know giants dodgers throwdown at the top of the nl west this year and I don't think it is. I, the Giants started out hot, but I just don't think they have the offense that they had last year to kind of keep it going. And Alex Cobb's injury certainly doesn't help. Then yeah. I think the Padres are looking pretty good. Like, like if you were worried about this Padres team completely collapsing and kind of having a rehash of last year, I mean, a lot of that happened in August and September, so it's still in play. But if you were worried that that was their true talent level... The first two weeks have done a lot to tell you. No, like this team has really good pitching and I think they're going to be just fine. Yeah, I think I think if you look at those those two teams particularly and you go, well, the Giants still look really good. Are they going to keep it up? And then the Padres, it's like, eh, what's, you know, what, you know, what's stopping them from falling apart again? And I think with the Giants, you go, there's no Buster Posey there. That's the heart and soul of their team, even though they still they're still a really good team. Can they keep this up? Over 162 without that guy. I don't know. I don't think so. They're still good. I don't think that's possible. And then the Padres, you go, can they really fall apart when Bob Melvin is their manager? I don't think so. And you can see like that the first game was a disaster. The first way they lost that game. And, and then, you know, kind of got beat up by the by the Giants and, and the Braves where you go, okay, they don't match up with those 
two teams right now. But yeah, it's a team that's because of their starting pitching, bullpen is is going to be fine. Just just hang in there, and then all of a sudden you add Fernando Tatis Jr. at some point, and and uh, it could be could be a, a fun second half. Yeah, I'm kind of a marginal bandwagon Giants fan because I live in San Francisco, and mm. it's fun when they're good. I mean, I'm I'm actually like root for them so much, but I enjoy when they're good because it makes a city more fun. And let's be honest, like the A's are not doing it for me at this point. There were 4,000 people at that game last night. Right. It's only the Giants, yeah. Like I have more of an acquaintance with them than I do the average baseball team. And that's already pretty high. And even I don't know how in the world they're going to score runs this year. Like they just, if they do it, they're going to be doing it with like smoke and mirrors. Jock Peterson is going to have to play a big role for them. And I don't think he's a great fit for that ballpark. Brandon Belt is awesome, obviously, but he's kind of their only obviously plus hitter. I mean, I get, I like Mike Yastrzemski, but he's he doesn't look good so far this year. He didn't look great last year. If I were the Giants, I'd be worried about that offense. I think that's, like, their pitching is great. And I think they can withstand Cobb being on the IL because they have good depth and they have a good bullpen and everything. But I think they had a lot of guys have really good years last year. And they really need a lot of those years to be repeated to have reasonable offensive performance. And then even then they're playing uphill because of Posey's retirement. And that's just, that's just an awkward kind of situation to be in. I mean, Brandon Crawford was with five and a half war last year. He hit 298, 373, 522. I don't know if he's going to get within 30 points of any of those this year. Yeah, that's why I think the projection systems are so, so important, even though, you know, when when you, well, let's see what, what whatever the, the Giants were projected last year, and then they went 107 games and everybody goes, oh, you stupid computers, you nerds, you know, and then, and then you look at them this year and you go, oh, how are they only going to be an 86 win team? Yeah. And it's like, the thing is, is that there's so many good qualities that you can't, you know, that the computer can't measure, and and it all came together last year. And of, and of course, you got, you know, the computer can give you percentiles of like, you know, if everything goes right, this is as good as you're gonna get, right? And I think the Giants were at an unbelievable number last year. It was like, I don't know, so many guys were at like in their ninety percent percentile of of what you'd yeah. expect from them. They all overperformed. And then this year, yeah, expectation is they're gonna come back down, even if you have a a few guys. That are over, you know, that are that are exceeding expectations. You know, for the most part, it's all going to balance out because you're going to have guys that get hurt. You're going to have guys that underperform, and the Giants did like it was a magical season all around. And 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 now you remove Posey, and here's the thing. And if they still win ninety plus games, that's not because because we're wrong. We're just I think we're just like pointing out obvious stuff here. It doesn't mean that they won't win ninety plus games. It's just you know it's it's more likely they're going to fall back down to a 80 to 90 win team. And, and, uh, and if they don't, it's because, you know, a lot of other factors and the, the types of players they have and the manager and the, the front office is so good because yeah, they're, they're still, you know, if, if you look at what Carlos Rodon is doing, if you look, you know, Alex Cobb will be out for a little bit now, but if you just look at that guy pitch and you go, man, they just, they just kind of yeah. know who they want and it works out and, and they know what they're looking for. And the team is like, confident they they know they're going to go out and win they know somebody's going to come up with a big hit that's yeah. just that just happens i feel yeah like i feel like there's a there's a pretty good chance that they're doing something that projection systems aren't capturing but you know whatever that thing is you can do it and still have a career season doing that and i think that's more likely than that they're just now a 100 win team i don't know like maybe they'll 
turn more of these guys into great hitters. It's hard for me to believe they're going to be quite as good as last year, but it's not hard for me to believe that the NL West is going to be the most fun race. Well, at least in the NL. I, yeah, the I mean, AL East could be pretty interesting. The Rockies look, look. Uh, I mean, it's early, but I think they're all right. They got Chris Bryant now, and they got a couple guys who can hit. The starting rotation is always good enough to, to keep them in ball games. So, and, and then the bullpen is it looks decent for now. So we'll see, we'll see how long they can hang. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic about the Rockies. I think they've they've looked all. I mean, they're prone to look good, particularly when they're playing in cores, because it just like increases offense and makes everyone feel like, oh, this guy could work, this guy could work. But they look pretty solid to me, and. Like, I don't think that they're going to actually compete for the division title, but like when that's your <laughs> when that's your fourth best team, I, I was going to say worst, but the Diamondbacks are pretty bad. Oh, I don't really yeah. have a lot of positive things to say about them, aside from, like, I like Cattell Marte. Seth Beer. They got a guy named Seth Beer. I think he's, I think he's the one guy that's, that's, yeah, he's like, he's at 393, 452, 571. Oh, look, listen, okay, watch, watch this. Uh, you thought, you thought the Reds were bad. Diamondbacks might not be as bad, but look at these averages. 171, 171, 216, 118, 241. And then you got Seth Beer at 393. And then you got 040, 105, 045. I think between the guys I have on the bench, there's only a couple hits out of all four of these guys. That's pretty, that's bad. So I'm actually, I'm interested in Cooper Hummel. I think he's one of the most fascinating kind of mid-tier, lower-tier guys that you'll see this year. So he's a like a walk first prospect. He's another kind of not really a catcher catcher. Although unlike Dalton Varsho, he's definitely not a center fielder if he's not a catcher. But he is hitting 100 and he has a nearly league average weighted runs created plus. Yeah. Eight, eight walks, eight walks and six strikeouts. He's two, he's two for 20 with a homer, eight walks, six strikeouts. Yeah, I wrote about him before the season as someone that a lot of predictive models I had Built. I mean, I don't know how good they are, but I, I think they're pretty good. He popped up as someone with a good chance at a major league career, like well in excess of his prospect pedigree. But I thought that was, you know, mid-season, like they're just seeing what they have thing. He just made the, I don't actually know if he made the opening day lineup, opening day roster, but yeah. he was up almost yeah, immediately. Yeah. And he's been like pretty decent. His carrying tool has always been his walks. That's just always been a thing. He walked 24% of the time last year in the Brewers system he walked a little bit less in the Diamondback system after a trade but he's always he's never gone to any level and not posted a double digit walk rate and I, I think that could be kind of an interesting piece if you can get a backup catcher out of Hummel plus Varsho that's kind of neat I mean I don't actually think they want him to play catcher he played a game at catcher this year but... I, saw, I saw that yeah he had a one inning at catcher <laughs> yeah it was one inning exactly like, they don't actually want to use him there and so I don't know like I'm willing to buy that he's an interesting thing, like an interesting piece that the Diamondbacks could build with. I, ugh, man, the rest of it. I like Carson Kelly. He's not, I'm not sure he's the guy that you need to build around. Yeah, there's a couple guys that, I don't know if how big the window is going to be, but you look at Jake McCarthy, you look at Ed Hummel, you look at Dalton Varsh was probably going to get in a, you know, I, I think he's locked, locked in for the year. You know, Paven Smith, not sure how long he's, he's going to get a look, but you got their top prospects are coming quickly. And that's Alec yeah. Thomas and AAA. And then um, Corbin Carroll, who's, who's just, he's already tearing it up in AA. 21-year-old. I think, you know, he, he's, he, he could be one of those guys who gets called up this year. He's just, at some point you realize, yeah, he's, you know, he's missed some time with an injury. But once you see him play, you go, ah, yeah, this guy's too good for, for the minors. Yeah. And they could use a real center fielder too. 
Yeah, and this guy can fly out there. So so these guys have a, you know, I think the Diamondbacks know they're bad and they, they probably have a couple of months to say, all right, which one of these guys are going to be part of our future? This, that's, you know, it's going to be, let's let's get Hummel and McCarthy and those guys enough at bats yeah. before we, we move on to the young, the, you know, the really young young guys who we know are going to be our, our future. Yeah, I don't actually think they're this bad on offense. They have, they have some guys who I, I think are interesting and I, I think they'll pick it up, but I do think they're pretty clearly the worst team in the division. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, offense, I mean, talking about, you know, bad offense. I mean, I think the Diamondbacks and the Reds are bringing bringing the the, uh, the league averages way down. It's it's I'm set. It, it seems and I haven't read too much into it. I know home runs are down. I know offense is down a little bit. Have you have you read anything into numbers being down? I know there's I think there's 100 less runs scored through 13 yeah. games compared to last year. Home runs are down. I've got a, a good Jeff Passan stat for you on this. Okay. I can't take credit for it. But uh, so batted balls hit between 100 and 102 miles an hour and in kind of the home run zone between 20 and 35 degrees. That's like that's home run angle. You can get by like to hit a home run lower or higher than that. You really have to kill it. You got to mm-hmm. crush the ball at 20 to 35. It's kind of like it's the right combination of carry and loft. So balls hit between 100 and 102 miles an hour. From 2015 to 2021, a third of them became home runs. You know, it, it matters whether you hit it to the corner. It matters what the wind's like. It matters where you're playing, blah, blah, topspin, backspin. But on average, a third of them have become home runs. So far this year, 16%. Hmm. And I think one of the things that's made me not want to write about this, because it immediately presents itself as something interesting to write about, is I don't know how humidors work, and I don't know how the ball works, and... I haven't seen Meredith Wills cut open a baseball and measure the fabric. And I just don't feel like I can actually write about this. You know, it seems like something's up with the ball. Yeah, because it was last last time and nobody really was talking about it for a bit until, you know, Meredith did write about it. And, you know, I think I think it was Rob, Rob Arthur. Yeah, I think a couple a couple of people did, you know, did a deep dive on that. It was like, yeah, the ball's different. That's why a uh, big reason why it's flying. And so. I think they needed to to make some changes, but I also think like if you, if you look at pitchers these days, man, they they don't need pitchers don't really need need a lot of help. Yeah, pitchers are good. Pitchers are really really good. It's really hard to to hit these guys. Pretty amazing when you when you the more you look at these guys and you see how hard they throw and how much the ball moves and just the way that teams utilize their pitching staff now. It's you know I, I don't need the starting pitcher to go through the lineup three times. I can I can go to my, my bullpen in the fifth and sixth inning and still give throw throw three or four guys out there who have above average stuff and are gonna to be tough on, on on all your all your hitters. It's not like you can feast on middle relief pitchers these days. So uh when do we go to the shorter rosters? Is it May first? I think it's May first or May second. I think that matters a lot for uh for pitching. I think teams are kinda of getting to cheat. They all have like sixteen pitchers right now. Yeah, and and I think this is there's been, you know, I I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm just saying, you know, as somebody who does this, tracks this stuff for a living, it, it, my sense is that there hasn't been that that constant roster, roster manipulating or you know like this guy's going to go on the IL. Something hurts, is you know his, he has a, you know whatever whatever is is hurting just a little bit, and you put this guy on the IL for for, for ten days, and you bring somebody up, or you, you just keep sending guys back and forth. That hasn't happened because you don't you don't need to do that because you already have ten or eleven relievers on on your roster. And then May second, it's going to be hard to do as well, even though you have you know, you're not going to have that that the bullpen size. But 
you can only option a guy five times a year. So you're not going to have the, the Lewis head situation where you just keep sending him up and down like 15 times. And it's a 15 day IL now. You can't put a starter on the aisle and, and, and go, okay, well, he's only going to, you know, we have an off day coming up. He might not even miss one start. Um, so let's put this guy in the IL and we'll, we'll call up a reliever. So we have an extra reliever for 10 days because it's a 15 day IL now. You send somebody to the minors, they can't come back for 15 days unless they replace an injured player. Right. I think that's going to be, uh, I think it's just going to be tough to keep up these four inning starts and then five straight innings where you just have your relievers come in and throw as hard as they can and they each get one inning. I mean, I'm just looking through random teams on roster resource here and almost everybody has used eight relievers-ish in their last three games. Like nobody's used fewer than six different relievers in their last three games. <laughs> Oh yeah, there there is. There's not like three or four guys sitting around doing nothing for for a month. I mean, they're all, they're all being utilized, and and so um, yeah, I, and I think that's part of it. That that that's going to bring it back. You know, the, if the ball isn't flying as much, I think this particular rule is going to help hitters a little bit, just because you can't just keep bringing in fresh arms up and down. I think when they bring the pitch clock in, which is which I think is almost you know a certainty next next year. For next year, yeah. I think that's going to help. And I think I haven't heard anybody say this, but I mean, my thought is that it, like if you go to the gym, right, you go to the gym and you're going to do some some bench presses. Right. And let's say you want to do the heaviest weight. OK, and you do a set. And then like if it's if it's a really heavy set for you, you're not going to do another set right away. You're going to yeah. like rest you're gonna for, get some water. Yeah, you're going to get some water. Looks, you're going like, to like look ripped. You're and... going to walk around. You're going to like yeah. take a deep breath and then you're going to jump back on it. Right. So if, so if you're a pitcher and you go, look, I'm going to throw this ball as hard as I can and you're not going to keep throwing it as hard as you can if you if you have to throw it every 18 seconds right that's no, totally like, agree yeah so i think that that's going to have an effect i mean it's it's going to it's going to really change things i haven't you know i haven't heard a lot of of that in, in the minors i mean all we're all we're hearing about in the minors is that yeah it's shaving a lot of time off of these games which is which is a good thing a lot of a lot of times just of guys stepping out of the box and pitchers taking their time i haven't heard about how it's affecting pitchers, like maybe not reaching their their you know uh, higher max velocity, closer to their max velocity as much, um, which which I think you know with with starting pitchers throwing less less innings, five innings, six innings or less, they're able to throw it at a higher max velocity than than normally. Where back in the day, you, you always heard this guy can you know this guy can reach ninety seven, but he sits. 92 93 and if he if he needs to he go you know he'll throw it up there at 96 97 but they're trying to get through yeah the lineup three times and and there's a whole it's like a whole chess game there with with these guys trying to do that which is which i think is is fun yeah i think the clock will matter quite a bit for that yeah so so we'll see i mean i i think hopefully it doesn't tilt it too far in either either direction so hopefully we'll see some offense bounce back here home home runs are fun and you know 100 less home runs than compared to 13 days last year that's a lot (laughs) i know we've had some you know there's been plenty of homers and and some fun highlights but maybe balance that out a little bit little bit more i think yeah i think i mean i watched an interview with Matt Brash that uh, the pitching ninja did recently. Mm-hmm. And he asked him about, you know, his pitch thoughts, basically. He said, I try to throw every pitch as hard as I can. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's maybe not great. Like, Yeah, that, that's not something you, you would hear. Like, like if you're a starting pitcher and, you know, five, ten years ago, that's not what you would tell him. <laughs> throw it as hard as you can because you're going to get tired. All right, maybe you're going to get hurt, which is, yeah. you know, injuries are a huge part of the game. And it's become such a 
bigger part of the game. And again, something that nobody talks about a lot, but you know, in the last 10 years, as, as, as the game has changed, like injuries have gone up, pitchers get hurt a lot more. And yeah, it's, it's because you say, look, throw it as hard as you can. (laughs) And maybe you won't throw seven innings. Maybe you only get through five, but that's okay. Cause we have another three guys following you that are going to throw it as hard as they can. And if their best pitch is a slider, they're going to throw that 75% of the time and because that's their best pitch and hitters can't hit it. So just keep throwing it. Where back in the day, you would say, yeah, throw that sl- slider every single time. You, you wouldn't do that because you go, yeah, that's going to put a lot of strain on your elbow. You're going to end up hurt. Yeah. That's not the case right now. And it's it's almost like that steroid argument where like, why, why would you do steroids? What are the risks? What are the benefits versus the risks? And if you're a fringy guy... Who's like, I, I might yeah, I might never get to the majors. Let's say I take some steroids, I don't get caught, I have a good year, I get to the majors, I make some money, and you know, maybe I, I get a steroid suspension, I'm out for, for half a year, but I have these really good numbers now, somebody else is gonna give me a chance. I mean, there's just so much you know, if you're a fringy guy, I think I think that always comes into the conversation where like yeah, I'll I'll do it and 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 whatever. It's better than what's gonna probably happen is that I'm never gonna make it to the majors. I'm gonna bounce around as a minor league free agent for a couple of years, and then I'd have to go find a job. And and this is this is more related to health, but it's like just keep throwing that that slider and look at somebody like Austin Adams for the Padres, where he was starting to dominate a few years back, and then he had Tommy John surgery. And if you look at his number at the, the it's a really small sample. You go, wow guy was dominant and he finally comes back and all, he's just only throwing sliders and it's unhittable you know and, and then he loses control at the end of the season which is breaks the record say, for hit, hitting more hitting. hit by pitches than hits. yeah yeah it he was it was it was a crazy progression but to get from from that and it's just like just just throw that slider nobody can hit it and now you might have another you might have to have another tommy john surgery it sounds like they're going to do the, the prp injection or whatever for now but he's not going to pitch for a while but i think austin adams is I think he was yeah he, he made it to arbitration so he's in his third year and he made nine hundred twenty five thousand he's making nine hundred twenty five thousand dollars this year and you know his his track record when he's healthy is good enough that he could probably stay on the roster and make another million next year so yeah it worked for him it's it you know what I mean he set he separated himself by doing something that probably wasn't good for it for the health of his elbow but it could make him a couple million dollars as opposed to just like hey, hey I pitched in the minors for a couple of years cool yeah so I don't know how long this will keep going because it's still a very small sample season but when I think of slow pitchers I just think of Pedro Baez because mm-hmm. he's the slowest pitcher oh yeah There are 20 pitchers who have a slower average time to the plate this year than Pedro Baez's career mark. That seems bad. Um, Yeah. That feels bad. I mean, it's an early season thing, and maybe they've had a lot of shakeoffs and stuff. Like, a lot of these guys have a third of an inning or two and a third innings. But, I mean, Sean Doolittle has thrown five innings. He's averaging 33 seconds between pitches. <laughs> I saw that. I saw a stat on you, Darvish, that he leads, I think he leads the majors in it, right? Among starters. Among starters, okay. I saw the stat while the game was going on, and I was like, yeah, this, this, this sure does feel like it. He's taking his time. Yeah, if Brandon Woodruff qualified, he would actually, he, he's Pedro Baez, except as a starter, but he's only wow. thrown eight innings. That's terrible. Wow. Huh, I mean, that's. Maybe maybe they're just trying to milk it. The last year they know they know the pitch clock's coming. And they're like, ah, I'm just gonna take yeah. as much time as I want right now. I would also believe that 
they've been told, hey, here's the deal. You're throwing 70 pitches tonight. And so, like, don't screw around. Like, make these 70 pitches count. And, okay, how do you do that? Well, take a few extra breaths. And like you said, you know. Yeah. Make, and I th- make some grunts. Make sure your spotter's <laughs> ready. Exactly. Make the perfect pitch. because Get your you grip know. perfect on that bar. Breathe in a few times. It kind of seems like that's what they're doing. And I'll be happy to see it go. But I don't fault any of the pitchers for doing it. Yeah, exa- exactly. And so, you know, may- maybe it, it shifts back the other way because if the ball isn't flying as much, maybe. And, and at some point, the pitchers realize, look, I, I get down to the bottom of the order and I'll just throw it down the middle, you know, with some movement. And this guy, you know, the best he can do is is line a single up the middle. You know, I mean, it's like the it's like the 80s where your second baseman was like a 250 hitter with you know, did, didn't walk, didn't homer, you know, like the little Glenn, Glenn Hubbard for the Braves, like little guys like that. Uh, and you get to the bottom of the order and you go, I'm not going to mess around and waste seven or eight pitches on this guy. I'm just going to throw it down the middle. And, you know, the, the worst worst that can happen is he, he lines a single, you know. But, you know, now with all the shifts, it's even it's even harder for that for that to happen. So I wonder if they do if, if this continues with with the ball just not flying as much, if they just say, you know, I'm going to be more efficient now. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to mess around. This transition worked out really well. Do you know which team throws the highest percentage of pitches in the strike zone this year? Hmm. Highest percent of pitches in the strike zone. I'll tell you this. They set up targets right down the middle. Almost every pitch until two strikes. Oh, wow. Hmm. It's the Orioles. And they've made an organizational philosophical overhaul. Uh, they're kind of copying the Rays. I think the Astros do this as well, particularly at the lower levels of the minors. But they just set their target up down the middle and, you know, say, get the ball in the strike zone and, like, let your let your ride or your carry or whatever move it to the edges. But I want you throwing strikes. And the Orioles pitching is great this year. I mean, it's extremely small samples, but they have the fourth most pitching war in baseball, they have a 281 ERA. A lot of that is because they've allowed home runs on 4% of their fly balls. And that's not going <laughs> to continue. But they have an XFIP below 4. Like, they're striking out way more than they normally do. They're walking fewer. It just seems like like they kind of have done what you said. Just said, you know what? Screw it. Like, let's throw it down the middle and let's see how that works. Ball's carrying less. I mean, they're not... <laughs> They're not doing the less than max effort version of that. They're throwing it down the middle of max effort, but it's been working so far. I'm very interested. Good results, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the bullpen is, you know, filled with, with guys you never heard of, but Joey Krabiel, CNL Perez, Felix Batista, Brian Baker, Dylan Tate, who's been around a little bit, but he's also, these are guys who, like, they've given up, like, two runs between those between the group of those guys that I just named. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's early. It's early and one, one bad outing could, could change things. But yeah, I was, I was looking through their bullpen because trying to figure out closer situations and, and, and looking at guys who were kind of climbing the ladder and you go, wow, none of these guys are giving up any runs. What's, is there anything interesting there? So yeah, I, I wonder if that, you know, they've been in, the, in a rebuild for like way, way too, too long, I think. <laughs> they're, they're, they should be a little bit further along based on when it, when it started. But I think if, they've, if they're implementing something like that, it would be interesting to see how, how it translates when some, I mean, it hasn't worked out great thus far with a lot of their young guys who come up, they, they don't pitch well. Keegan Aiken's been really good out of the bullpen this year. So maybe, maybe there's... I'm really interested in Keegan Aiken. Yeah. He's... So his numbers, I mean, he has zero ERA, so that's good, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he's not striking out a ton of guys. And you might say, eh, this won't last. Like, it's just a bad thing. He's missing a ton of bats. I, I don't know how he's not striking more people out. It's just because they're swinging all the time. But he has a 19% swinging strike rate. People are chasing more than half of his pitches outside of the zone. He looks, like, like really good. And he is. Like, he's just attacking. He has maybe the highest zone rate in baseball. He's throwing 56% of his pitches in the strike zone. 
And I guess that can explain why people swing a lot when he misses the zone. It's because they assume it'll be in the strike zone. But yeah, I'm bought in on him. Yeah, for some reason he's not he's not starting. So I think they don't want maybe they don't want to mess with with what's happening right now. I mean, kind of yeah. they're letting two journeymen who actually were good. Spencer Watkins was really good the other day. Chris Ellis started yesterday. He was really good. So yeah, for some reason they're just like oh, let's just. Let's just leave him in the bullpen. But it would be interesting to see how some of their bigger, pro- better prospects do when they come up. And it sounds like they're going to take their time with Grayson Rodriguez. Yeah, I don't I don't hate that. Yeah, 2023 guy. But D.L. Hall should be up this year. Cal Bradish is probably going to get a look. So, yeah, there's it's it's interesting. I mean, they're not going to, I mean, they're, they're three, and, three and eight, despite, you know, some, some good stuff happening. Yeah, they don't have enough hitters. And yeah. And they don't actually have enough pitchers. But I'm very interested to see how this... Uh, just throw it down the middle plan works so far. Early returns are good. Yeah. And I've seen some, some, uh, you know, that, that was a thing back, back in the day in the, in the 90s. He was a pottery fan. If you, if you remember guys like Joey Hamilton and Matt Clement, they were so like erratic and the ball moved so much. And I, and it was constantly like, we're just trying to tell this guy, throw it right down the middle. <laughs> yeah. Matt Clement, like, I didn't follow baseball that closely then. That is a guy from my, my youth where I was like, man, that guy has like, just unhittable stuff. Yeah, the the ball. I mean, the slider would whatever he threw, it was just moving like crazy. Like some of the stuff you see today on pitching ninja, he would probably be a a favorite on, on oh, he'd be there. A favorite for sure. Yeah, but a lot. I mean, it was just all over the place. The wild pitches and yeah, I don't I don't even, I don't even remember how his career ended, but I remember with with the Potters, it was always like, oh, this guy could be so good. Just throw it down the middle and 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 let let the uh, the movement go to work for you. Yeah, he had a little bit of a run with the Cubs. He had one season where he threw 200 innings with a 356 ERA. Pretty yeah, good. All right. Yeah. And then, uh, I don't know whether it was injuries, but he he kind of flamed that after that. He had, was, he had another decent season. Basically had three seasons there where he was an above average pitcher. Then he signed a free agency deal with the Red Sox, it looks like, and must have gotten hurt because he pitched in 2005, pitched 60 innings in 2006. Yeah, because he was, he was done at... He was done after age thirty-one, so he is—he's uh, forty-seven now. I, I was gonna say he—he he could be one of those guys that you forget about, and then—and then you go. He, yeah. he, he's still pitching in the Mexican league. He's only thirty-seven. Oh <laughs> no, this guy's forty-seven right now. He's probably done, but I think he's done. Yeah. Yeah. If only he were on the twenty twenty-two Orioles. Hey, I think there's a spot. They—they they, they assigned Matt Harvey to a minor league deal, and <laughs> might as well, man. That that was the veteran that you know with all these young guys, and you go, you know, let's bring in a veteran guy, and you keep going to Matt Harvey. I think they should just bring in Clement, let him tell them, guys. I wish I had known to throw down the middle. He'll teach your organizational philosophy for you. Exactly. Joey Hamilton's the other guy. Look, look him up, man. He was before Matt Clement, but same same thing. The ball would just move like crazy. I don't think he had any idea where the ball was going. Oh yeah, he looks like these walk numbers are. Some of them are crazy. He had some yeah. bad seasons for walks there. No, nothing like the um, nothing like Bobby Witt Senior. I think I think he's the one where I looked at his his, uh, his stats and I was like, how the hell does he? Yeah, he was like rookie year, 143 walks, 174 strikeouts. Then he had 140 walks, 160 strikeouts. Oh, his walk. Yeah, he actually he actually was a lot better later in his career. He got his his walks per nine under four a few times, but Ooh, under four. <laughs> yeah, I will uh, I will send us out with a Bobby Witt factoid I enjoyed. I was watching Cardinals Royals and Bobby Witt Jr. came up and Jim Edmonds, who definitely did not read a pregame press pack, was like, Bobby Witt Jr. <laughs> I played against his dad. Like he didn't know that Bobby Witt Jr. He didn't realize I that mean, Bobby Witt Jr. Was, was a big deal. He must have, right? Like he must have seen something or he must have seen that they had a rookie and not put two and two together. But he was like, wow, 
I remember some at-bats I had against that guy. Yeah, he never knew where the ball was going. It was great. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, he pitched until 2001. Oh, yeah, so he was he definitely was faced off against each other. And he was even in the AL a few times when Edmonds was still on the Angels. With the Angels, yeah. All right, on that note, I think we're going to head out and get back to watching baseball. I'm pretty excited for a day of it. You're going to the Padres game tonight, right? Yeah, as soon as, as soon as we hang up here, I'm going oh, to head game, over. Yeah, ho- hopefully no bean balls. I, I'm looking forward to a, to a cage match or something between Voight and Pham, but I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the bean balls. So let's let's hope it's a good good killing game. Yeah, agreed. I would like to see them settle it with like a dance off or a Muay Thai fight if they want to, but not by throwing baseballs at people. Let's not yeah. do that. Yeah. Good talking to you, Ben. You too, Jason. Talk to you again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Derek Falvey for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs shop, make sure to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on, free to your inbox every weekday. That'll do it for us. Have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time.